our small group time for our children, for some of our older children, they're going to be getting, going to begin a new believers class. And this class is really for those who have just came to faith in Christ, as well as those who are uh, seriously considering it. We have several of our children right now that uh, uh, we would say that are right on the edge of placing their faith in Jesus. They can answer the good questions, and they just haven't yet come to a, a point of faith. And so this class hopefully will help them and understand the gospel a little bit more. And so if your child is not signed up for that, but you want them to be a part of that during our small group time, you can go downstairs and, and indicate to our leaders that you want your child to be a part of that class. We're sort of pulling them aside from our regular small group time for about an eight-week class from that standpoint. Take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to continue in our series, walking verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. We began it two Sundays ago, and uh, last week we finished chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at chapter 1 a little bit, but also begin chapter 2, looking at the first eight verses. This morning I want to speak to the subject of hearing from heaven. I want to talk about prayer. You know, prayer is an interesting concept. It's an interesting aspect of the Christian life and a part of the Christian church. It's our lifeline to the God who loves us, created us, and has redeemed us. But for some reason, prayer is often that aspect of our Christian faith, that aspect of our Christian church, of us walking in community together, that we shy from. In fact, the the least attended event of church is a prayer meeting. You ever realize that? We could call the church to prayer. We could ask for you to come and pray and fast and join us. And a handful usually would participate. A handful would come and be a part of that prayer time. But if we went and said, hey, we want to have a potluck. We're going to have a fellowship. We're going to go do a mission trip. We're going to do whatever. There would be a whole lot more people that would attend those things versus the one and perhaps the most important aspect of our Christian life and as our community as a church, and that is prayer. God calls us to prayer. God speaks to us about prayer. And so this morning, as we look here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to see, and we've already seen Nehemiah praying, seeking the face of God, asking for his intervention, asking for his hand of blessing and guidance and provision. We see in Nehemiah's life, not only here in these first two chapters, but also all the way through this book, we see Nehemiah hearing from heaven. Philip Yancey, in his book, Prayer, tells of a story of him being and him and his wife in St. Petersburg. And so in the book, he tells how one cold and early November morning there in St. Petersburg, Russia, Yancey went out for a jog uh, in the dark. It was early morning there, and that at that latitude, the sun doesn't rise very early in the day. And so it was a dark, cold morning. He was running through an area that was under construction. And so as he was running through that area, he suddenly slipped on some unseen ice, and he fell face down onto the ground, barely missing this steel rebar that was protruding from the curb. The fall knocked him out cold. I mean, he was out. He wasn't sure how many minutes he was out, but when he awoke and sat up, he reached up and he touched his right eye, and his eye obviously was throbbing from from the fall, and so he immediately touched it. He feels blood on his face. In fact, as he felt around on his face, he learned that his whole right face was a bloody mess. He got up. He dusted himself off. He felt around for any more injuries. I mean, you can imagine falling face first. He's hurting all over. The taste of blood is in his mouth. He kind of did what we would probably do, takes his tongue and rubs around in his mouth and learns that he's one one tooth less than what he had when he began the the run. And so he lost a tooth. His eyes bleeding. His face is throbbing. 
Yancey picked himself up, stumbled back to the hotel, all the way back to the hotel. All these Russians that were passing him on the street were staring at him. And Russians rarely will look a visitor in the eye. But on this particular morning, everyone that passed him was looking him straight in the face. He was obviously a mess. As he returned to his hospital or his hotel room and began to sh- share with his wife what had happened, he was determined that he was not going to go to the hospital. And in Russia, he had heard all of the horror stories of Russian medical care. And so his wife doctored him up the best that she could. Later that day, he went out to find an internet, internet cafe. He was hurting. He was in pain. There was uh, anxiety about what perhaps else could be wrong with him. And so he needed to he needed to send a message, and so he finally found an internet cafe, and uh, so they're struggling to figure out the Cyrillic alphabet on the keyboard as well as on the screen, and trying to find something he could understand. He finally stumbled upon an AOL screen that was in English. The connection was spotty, but he finally was able to type out a short message before his internet connection fully went off, and this was the message, we need help, please pray. He sent that message to his home church back in Colorado. You see, Yancey was hurt. He was not sure how bad he was hurt. And in in addition, as he was fumbling around on that AOL page, he saw a news banner that was indicating that Chechen rebels had taken over a a movie theater there in Moscow. And Moscow was under military lockdown. And Yancey knew that he was supposed to travel there in just a couple days to speak. And so not only was he severely hurt, but also now his trip was threatened. He didn't know what the future held for him. Would he be able to get in Moscow or not? And so as he was walking back to his hotel, Yancey just began to wonder. He began to wonder, is this how prayer works? You send out a, a signal from the visible world to an invisible world and hope that someone receives it. But when, if and when they do receive it, you don't know if they will be able to respond. You don't know if they'll even be able to receive it. And so still for the first time that day, as Yancey's walking back and as he's thinking and contemplating about the message, the fear, the lump of fear that he had felt, the anxiety within him began to loosen. You see, Yancey began to be confident that in a few hours his family would wake up, turn their computers on, read his message, and they would hit their knees praying on his behalf. As Yancey was walking back to the hotel, he began to realize that I and my wife are not alone. You know, every faith has some form of prayer. Remote tribes present offerings and then pray for everyday things such as health and food, rain, children, and victory in battles. History tells us that the Incas and the Aztecs went so far as to sacrifice humans in order to attract the God's attention. Five times a day, modern Muslims will stop whatever they're doing. If they're having tea, drinking coffee, doing commerce, whatever they're doing, when the sound summons, the call comes to pray, Muslims pray. Even atheists find ways to pray. During the heady days of communism there in Russia, Yancey also shares that party stalwarts kept a red corner, a a corner of their room that they called the red corner. They placed portraits of Lenin there where Christians used to keep their icons. So caught up in this fervor, the magazine Provident in 1950 ran this advice to its readers. This is what it said. If you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him. Think of Stalin. And you will find the confidence you need. If you feel tired in an hour when you should not, think of him, of Stalin, and your work will go well. If you're seeking a correct decision, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find that decision. There's an atheistic, communistic country that's calling people to pray to Stalin. And so, 
Why do we pray this morning? Why, why in our life as, as human beings, not even as Christians, why as human beings are we called and drawn to pray to seek something outside of ourselves? You see, I believe we pray because we want to thank someone or something. We want to thank them for the beauties that we have in life. We want to thank this higher power for all the things that this world and this life has to offer. Also, I believe we pray because we feel small and helpless, and even times we feel afraid. And so we're seeking someone or something that is greater than ourselves. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for strength. We pray for contact with the one who is for assurance that we are not alone. Today, millions in AA groups or groups like that will pray daily to what they would call a higher power, begging for help and controlling their addictions. They understand that they cannot do it themselves. They need someone outside of them to intervene in their situation. This morning, I believe one of the greatest reasons we pray is because we can't help it. I I think the scripture is quite clear that we were made by God and for God. And so there is something innate within our humanity, within our makeup that leads us and calls us and draws us to seek something that's outside of ourselves. In fact, the very word prayer in English comes from the Latin Latin root precarious, which means to be obtained by entreaty. And so there in St. Petersburg, Russia, Philip Yancey was praying out of desperation. He's praying out of his situation. He had nowhere else to turn. Prayer also is universal because it speaks to some basic human need. Thomas Burton put it this way. He said, prayer is an expression of who we are. We are a living incompleteness. We are a gap, an emptiness that calls for fulfillment. In prayer, what we do is we break silence. And sometimes those words flow out of our deepest parts. We need to hear from heaven. How many this morning, I wonder, without a show of hands, I wonder this morning how many of us absolutely need to hear from heaven. You, you've got to hear from heaven. There's something in your life that's, that's pressing and you need a word from God. This is where Nehemiah found himself as we come to Nehemiah chapter 2. He found himself, at the end of himself, he's he's understanding the shameful state that the people of God in. He's understanding the shameful state that the, the land of God is in. And he needs to hear from heaven. And in fact, the story of Nehemiah's life is a, is a prayer life. And Nehemiah's prayer life doesn't start here in Nehemiah chapter 2. It doesn't even start in chapter 1. You see, what we see in Nehemiah's life, in his prayer life, is a continuation of a lifestyle of prayer. See, the pattern of prayer we find in these pages speak of a lifelong pattern of prayer that he had been undergoing. He understood how vital it was to disengage for a while from life's pleasures in order to spend valuable time with the Lord and thus replenish his resources. He understood this rhythm, this cycle of life. You see, everyone needs that kind of spiritual space. Every one of us need quiet moments where we can retreat and and spend time in prayer. We can spend time in meditation. We can spend time reading the Word of God and and allowing God to speak and to fill our tank. Prayer, as we look at Nehemiah's life, we learn must never be uh, used as an excuse for laziness. It should never be an excuse for uh, not doing something. You see, what we see in Nehemiah is a man who was on his knees, but then he rose up from his knees and he went to work. He was equipped by the Lord every single day for the work 
that God had placed before him. And so this essential rhythm of withdrawal and involvement is a vital aspect of, of, of effective Christian living. We need to retreat, but then we need to get forward into the work that God has put before us. Nehemiah was a man of prayer, but he was also, as we shall see, a man of action, namely because each day he was able to hear from heaven. So take your word, your Bible there, and look with me in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. The Bible says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Lord Jesus, we pray that you take your word this morning. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, teach us how to pray. Lord, your disciples asked you to teach them how to pray. And God, I pray that as we look at this example, this model of Nehemiah, and how he sought your face and prayed and, and asked for you to intervene in his situation and the situation of others, God, teach us this morning how to hear from heaven. We ask this in your powerful name. Amen. Nehemiah. Immediately took up his prayer. He immediately took up his petition on behalf of these fellow Jews in the city of Jerusalem when he heard the report from Hanani. What we looked at a couple of weeks ago there in chapter 1, as soon as he heard the situation and how bad it was, how awful it was, how they were struggling and hurting, Nehemiah immediately began to pray. He was a man of decisive action. And when he prayed, it was natural for him to ask God to provide an early, if not immediate, opportunity for him to speak to the king. That's what we ended with last week there in chapter 1. He was asking God that today, grant me success as I go before the king, as I do my duty, as I live out my my life. Grant me success. But he, as he went from his prayer to daily work, as he did this day after day after day, he began to realize that though his preferred day was today, the preferred day for God wasn't today. It was sometime in the future. And so we learn here in chapters 1 and 2 that for more than a hundred days, Nehemiah went into the Lord's presence, sought the Lord's face, asked the Lord's blessing, asked the Lord's leadership, asked the Lord to open doors and provide opportunities, but it did not happen. For 100 days, he prays and seeks the hand of God, waiting all the while for the moment, the best moment in God's providence to speak to the king. Nehemiah's daily example of hearing from heaven reveals for us this morning four things that ought to be 
consistent, ought to be present in our devotion to prayer. We could think of them like this, four dispositions that should be present in our prayer life. First thing we see about Nehemiah and his prayer life was that it involved presumption. He was presumptuous in his prayers. Presumption. You see, as followers of Jesus, we should never presume upon God's grace. We should never think, like, like the questions that, that Paul asked in Romans 6.1, should sin abound, that grace abound more. He says, by no means should it happen that way. In other words, we should never presume upon the grace of God. In other words, we should never live our life as though sin doesn't matter because I've been covered by the blood. I've been covered by grace. We should not presume upon grace in that way because it does nothing but pervert and cheapen grace. It is, on the other hand, good and right to presume that God will hear and answer us when we pray. You see, when we fall before the Lord and we bear our hearts and our souls before the Lord, Nehemiah teaches us that we should and it is good for us to presume that the Lord will hear and the Lord will respond. Nehemiah prayed with this sort of presumption. Look with me there in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse, verse 4. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. What words? The words that Hananiah had brought. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down. I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Then look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. What is Nehemiah doing here? He's presuming in his prayer. He's understanding that God has spoken a word and that this word that God has spoken, he can believe, he can take it to the bank, he can bank his life upon it because God will come through. In our study of what prayer is and how the believer is to pray, we must understand that first place must be given to faith. That's what presumption is here. It's you believing that God has spoken and that God will respond to you when you seek His face. It's the initial quality in the heart of any Christian who attempts to talk to the unseen God. See, we must... We must, out of sheer helplessness, stretch forth hands of faith. We must believe where we cannot prove. Sometimes we can't prove certain things about life. We can't prove certain things even about God. But we can take his word and believe that he hears and responds. As E.M. Bounds has said, and I quote, Prayer is simply faith, claiming its natural yet marvelous prerogatives. Faith taking possession of its illimitable, or we could say limitless, inheritance in Christ. It's you just realizing God has said this and I'm going to believe it and I'm going to take it to the bank. I'm going to apply it to my life. I'm going to pray in, in accordance. Manly Beasley, I love what he used to say back in yesteryear. He said, faith is believing something is so when it is not so in order for it to be so because God says it is so. It's you just believe in God's word. Beasley here is not advocating some sort of abstract faith. What Beasley is advocating, what Beasley is talking about when he makes this statement, is having a concrete faith. It's not a faith that's in faith. It is a faith that is in a God who has spoken. And so it's concrete. It's built upon a solid foundation. He spoke of a faith that presumed upon the faithfulness of God's word. Hebrews 11.1 speak to this. 
It's the hope of things not seen, and yet God has spoken to it. 1972, let me just illustrate what Beasley's talking about here and how he lived this out in his life. In 1972, Tom Elif, some of you may know the name Tom Elif. He was the former president of our International Mission Board. Tom Elif was the pastor. He became the pastor of Eastwood Baptist Church there in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tom Elif had been in seminary at Southwestern Seminary during the 1970 revival. God had done a great work not only there at Southwestern Seminary, but in, in seminaries and Baptist schools and Christian schools all across our country. Many people refer to that movement as the Jesus movement there in the first few years of the 70s. And so having been experienced and, 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 and exposed to the, the movement of God there in that campus, he was not going to be satisfied with a business-as-usual approach to church. So as he came to Eastwood Baptist in 1972, he began to wonder how he could set the future spiritual course of the people that God had placed under his care. Eastwood was a church that really had just done nothing but hold their own for a number of years, but that was not going to be good enough for, for Tom Elif, much less good enough for the Lord. And so Tom, having heard of Manly Beasley and how God was using him, I mean, Beasley was a man who had been at death's door. God had used him to create a hunger for spiritual renewal and re- spiritual revival in the hearts of God's people. And so Tom invited him to come and to preach. They scheduled a series of meetings that was supposed to take place the first week of December of that year. It was going to begin on a Sunday. And Saturday, Tom got a call from Manly Beasley. Manly was in a hospital there in Dallas, Texas, and he told Tom that he wouldn't be able to make it the next day, and so Tom preached for him on that Sunday. Monday morning, he gets another call from Manly and says, man, brother Tom, I'm not going to be able to make it. Maybe tomorrow I'll be there. Tom had to preach. Tuesday, the same thing happens again. Finally, on Wednesday, Manly arrived in Tulsa. He was in a wheelchair. He was wrapped in a heavy winter coat, and he looked as though he should have stayed in the hospital. That evening, Tulsa received a really major ice storm, two inches of ice all over the city, and yet Tom refused to postpone the meeting. Manly was there, and so they were going to meet. Whoever would show up would show up, and so 200 people were able to come to the service that night. Manly preached on a stool because he didn't even have the strength to stand up. He got done preaching. He went and sat down in the pew. Probably, from Tom's perspective, seemed like nothing was happening. Probably he was discouraged. He might have even been a little upset because he had stocked, put a lot of stock in this revival, a lot of stock in Manly Beasley, but because of his health, he wasn't able to perform as normal. And yet there was more happening than met the eye. Tom recalls a conversation that he had with Manly before the evening service on that Wednesday. Manly looked at Tom and says, Tom, what do you want? What do you want to see? Tom replied to Manly and says, what do you mean by that? He says, son, what do you want to see here happen here at Eastwood. Mainly, I, I want to see God bless. I want to see people saved. He, Tom Elif gave the, 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 the answer that I would probably give, what most preachers would probably get. We just want to see God bless. We want to see people saved. It really was this sort of generic answer to this very important question. The next morning, Manley called from the motel room and asked Tom the same question. That evening, he, on Thursday, he asked Tom the same question again. Both times, both times got, Tom gave him the same answer. On Friday morning, Manley called again. This time Tom responded, Brother Manley, I've been listening to you and now I think I know what I really want. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to experience the fullness of his life living in me. I want this personally. I also want it for my church. 
Manly, they're on the phone, told Tom, son, I think now revival has come to not only you, but also to your church. That night, Manly preached. He didn't give an invitation. He was, got sick after the service and left early Saturday morning. The message he preached, though, remained with them. It was the message of faith. The people of East, East Side Baptist, Eastwood Baptist, had heard things that they had never heard before. The message was so, so deeply sown into their hearts that for years to come, the compass was set for them. It was a, it was a, a, a designation of faith. Manly taught them the principle of getting a word from God, and he showed them that faith was simply cooperating with God in what he has said. Manly put it this way, God's will is revealed by the Holy Spirit through the word. Faith is not just, re, just believe that God can do something. Faith is acting on the basis of what God has said. That message of faith revolutionized this church. This church ran about 500 in attendance on a weekly basis in and, and just a short time because they were be, they becoming a people of faith and believing God and praying and seeking His face. Their attendance grew from 500 very quickly to over 2,500. They became what in Southern Baptist life many know of as exciting Eastwood. Nehemiah, like this church, like Tom Edelf, like Manly Beasley, presumed upon God's word. And as he prayed here in chapter 1, he believed what God had said. He prayed in faith. Ian Bounds says it this way, when faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. I'm telling you this morning, in your prayer life, be presumptuous. In your prayer life, presume that God will hear, and God wants to hear, and God will respond to your prayer life, to the things that you're laying before him. Be presumptuous in your prayers. Second thing that ought to be a part of your devotion to prayer, second thing that we see in Nehemiah is persistence. Persistence. Jesus there, as he's preaching on the ser- what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, taught in taught about prayer. He told us that in prayer we should ask and keep asking. We should seek and keep seeking. We should knock and keep knocking. And he tells us in verse 7 of Matthew 7 that when we do these things, all the things we're asking for, all the things we're seeking God for will be opened unto us. This is exactly what Nehemiah did. He persisted in prayer. Again, going back to chapter 1 verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. If you go on in that verse, he says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. What What do we learn here? He's persisting in prayer. He's continuing in this day and night, day and night, day after day after day for over a hundred days, four months. He's persisting in prayer. E.M. Bounds taught that persistent prayer is a mighty movement of the soul toward God. It is a stirring of the deepest forces of the soul toward the throne of heavenly grace. It's the ability to hold on, to press on, and wait. It's not an accident. It's not an incident. It's not a performance. It is a passion of the soul. It, it, It is you really grabbing hold of the horns of the altar and persistently praying before the Lord. It's not a half-needed want, but a sheer necessity. In other words, it's you having the tenacity, it's you having the heart, it's you having the mindset that if God doesn't come through, I'm sunk. That's what persistent prayer is. Therefore, as Christians who do not press their plea, they really don't pray at all. 
Cold prayers have no claim on heaven and no hearing in the courts above. Uh, Listen to this statement. Fire is the life of prayer and heaven is reached by flaming persistence rising in an ascending scale. So in order to hear from heaven, we must pray and keep on praying. That's what we see in the life of Nehemiah. He didn't come before the Lord after hearing Hananiah's report and say, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do something for those people back in Jerusalem. I hate that they're in heartache. I hate that they're in great trouble. I hate that the walls are broken down. Lord, help them. And then we go on his life. He didn't just do it once. Every single day, he's coming before the Lord and praying and seeking the face of God. He was persistent. There's a third thing we learn that should be a part of our prayer life, and that is patience. Patience. Look there in chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah tells us that in the month of Nisan, in the month of Nisan, well, what kind of indication is that for us? That right there tells us that four months had passed from the moment he heard of this report in the month of Kislev to the month of Nisan is four months. All of those days had passed between them. And Nehemiah had prayed every single day, asking God for an opportunity and seeking this opportunity and being ready for the opportunity if it came. Surely the days seem long and his patience probably was stretched to its limit. I mean, this is a dynamic extrovert. This is a guy who was a man of action. This was somebody who wanted to get the job done. And so it would have been hard for him day after day to pray and to seek the face of God and yet still kind of hold the reins back and not to get ahead of the Lord. Like any person, he wanted God to act today. But the opportunity did not come for months. Contrary to conventional wisdom, those four months were not wasted. You see what we would usually think? We would read this story, and in our humanity and our depravity, we would look at this and say, what a waste. I mean, here's the story. Here's the report of Hannah and I. The brothers back home are in trouble, grave trouble, difficulties. Their, their, their economy's broken. The, the social side is broken. Everything's broken in Jerusalem. Something needs to be done today. And so we would look at this four months and say, what a waste. Why didn't we take action? Where's Nehemiah wasting his time praying? Get to work. That's the way we would look at it. We would look at it as wasted time. But that's not the way Nehemiah looked at it. See, the time he spent with God multiplied his creative thoughts. The time he spent with God provided new perspectives for him. The time he spent with God made him more prepared and composed than he ever thought possible. I mean, when he stands before the king and that question is asked, what are you requesting of me? He was able to say, this is exactly what we need because he had spent four months praying patiently before the Lord, seeking his face. And so waiting time is not wasted time. And as you wait on God to answer your prayer, trust that he is using that time to deepen your faith, to sharpen your skills, and to broaden your perspective. Yesterday, if you're reading with us chronologically through the Bible, we read of Joseph, the story of Joseph, this son, this favored son of Jacob who is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's taken down to Egypt and they're sold into Potiphar's house. And there, even as a slave, is is raised up to the great leader of his home, takes care of all the affairs of Potiphar, this very important, influential man. He's falsely accused, put in prison for a number of years. There is, is given a place of prominence as well. But also he has an opportunity to interpret some dreams. And when that cupbearer goes back to his position with the pharaoh, he asked him, hey, man, when you get back there, don't, don't forget me. But for two years, the cupbearer never thought about Joseph. Until the day that Pharaoh had some dreams that needed interpretation. 
And then all of a sudden the cupbearer remembers. And so it all in all, from the time that he was sold into slavery to the time he was raised up out of the prison by Pharaoh into a place of prominence is about 13 to 15 years. Here's a young guy who had had visions of God. God had told him all the things that were going to happen and how he was going to be used to preserve life. He was His brothers were jealous of him. He was sold into slavery. He was forgotten there. I mean, all was lost for him. And yet, 13 to 15 years later, all that comes to fruition. What was God doing during those years when he was sold into slavery and put in prison? Sharpening him. Preparing him. Doing what's necessary for him to be the great deliverer. See, what we look at and what we see in the life of Joseph is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He was the one who preserved life. He's the one who redeemed life. He's the one who was a a, a preserver of all of God's people to get them through. So the time there was not wasted time as he was in the dungeon and in the prison and sold into slavery. He was patient. There's a fourth thing we see about prayer, and that is preparation. King Artaxerxes asked Nehemiah what he wanted because he had spent time in prayer. He was able to quickly respond and thoroughly respond to the king because he had prepared. He had spent those months, he had spent those days as he's praying. It's amazing when we get before the Lord day after day about something, it's amazing how the Lord opens our hearts and opens our minds up to what we're praying about. It's rarely this closed off thing. The answer may be no, the answer may be wait, the answer may be not now, it may be all those things. But as you persistently and patiently bring that need before the Lord, what he does is he begins to cultivate within you all the plans, all the things that are going to be necessary, needed, when it comes to fruition. That's what happened with Nehemiah. In verse 3, we see here that Nehemiah purposefully did not mention Jerusalem or anything about the city's wall. Uh, history tells us that King Artaxerxes had put an end to some of the work that Ezra was doing because they were known as this rebellious city. So there was false reports. Artaxerxes stopped the work. And so here, if, if uh, Nehemiah, day one, after coming, hearing from the Lord and coming before the king, says, King, I want you to send me to Jerusalem, the answer would have probably been no. Because he had spent time with the Lord and began to think through how to say it and when to say it and what to say. He knew to kind of cloak his language, to say certain things but not to say other things. In verse 5, uh, he asked, when asked to return to the city of his fathers, he, he again doesn't mention Jerusalem. He appeals to the fact that the king would have been... Um, Lenient. The king would have been gracious when he heard this idea of going back and, and honoring their ancestors because that was a big deal in Persian life. When asked about how long it would take Nehemiah, Nehemiah had an answer there in verse 6. He wisely also in verses 7 and 8 asked for letters to give him safe passage as well as provisions. In verse 8 we even learn that Nehemiah knew the person that would give him the timber to build the walls and the gates and to do all the things for his house. He says, also, king, not only give me a letter for the governor, give me a letter to Asaph because he's going to have all the provisions I need. He had made preparations during this time of prayer. Surely, there were all manner of things which Nehemiah would like to have done during those four months of tedious delay. But he did what he could. He prayed, he trusted, and he thought for God. He didn't just sit around waiting on God, he prepared. See, Nehemiah had a word from God, and he acted on the basis of that word. What was the word? 
It's what he said in Deut- or Nehemiah chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 4. God it says, if you will sin, if you sin against me and turn from me, I will scatter you among the nations. But when you turn back, I will bring you back to this homeland. Nehemiah is operating in the promise of that word from God. So he waited for an opportunity to present itself. And while he was waiting, he prepared. This morning, as you wait to hear from heaven, you need to do what you can. You need to prepare for what you are believing God for. As we think about, as we talk about prayer, it's universal. Everyone, everywhere prays. But how can we be sure that the signals we send from a visible world to an invisible world will be received? I mean, think about that. How how do we know? How can we be sure that our prayers are heard? How can we be sure that the one who hears them will or even can respond? Perhaps they're getting through, but does God have the the capabilities to respond. You see, as Christians, we pray like everyone else. And yet, we don't pray like everyone else. We pray just like everyone else, but our prayer is different from everyone else because as Christians, we're praying by faith to a God who has spoken, to a God who has acted, and we pray believing it that he's going to continue to do what he's always done. Our prayer, our faith is not abstract. Our prayers and our faith is concrete. It is real. We have the revealed word of God. We have the testimonies all throughout the canon of scripture. We have the testimonies of faithful men and women from all of church history who have believed God's word and seen God come through according to his word. So our faith is not abstract. Our faith is not a faith in faith. Our faith is concrete. It is a solid foundation and it's grounded in the word of God. That was a good place to say amen, by the way. Those people heard from heaven. Why? Because they presumed upon God. They believed he would speak. They heard from heaven because they persisted in their prayer. They heard from heaven because they patiently waited in prayer. And they heard from heaven because they prepared while praying. Think of the 120 in the upper room waiting for Pentecost. What are they doing? Praying praying. For 10 days they prayed in the upper room all the while believing what Jesus has said. Go to Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And they went back and prayed. And while they're praying, they're preparing their hearts, they're preparing their minds, they're preparing. And so what happens the day of Pentecost? I mean, we could go all throughout Scripture, example after example after example. We could spend the rest of the day looking at this. But what is, what is Peter prepared to do when the day of Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit is poured out? What is he prepared to do? Stand and preach. When the people look and say, hey, what do we need to do? He says, repent and be baptized. He pre- preaches the gospel and 3,000 come to faith in Jesus. We must prepare while we pray. Praying is part of our preparation. So how about you this morning? Do you pray with the presumption that God will hear and will respond? Do you pray persistently, continually bringing the things before the Lord, uh, bringing the things that are on your heart to Jesus? Do you pray patiently, believing that God knows the right time to respond? Sometimes we may become disillusioned because we've been praying for a number of days, months, maybe even years. We've not heard anything from heaven. We can become disillusioned. But in our patience, we need to be uh, fervent. We need to be steadfast. We need to be continual and persistent and patient. Do you prepare as you pray? I I love Hosea 10.12, and I'm going to close with this. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Then listen to what he says. Break up your fallow ground. 
For it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You see, what the people of God here are wanting, what they're desiring is for God to produce a mighty crop in their life. They want the bountiful blessing of heaven to be upon them. And because of their sin, because of their wickedness, they're in exile here. And so what God is saying through Hosea is, as you're seeking this, there's some things you need to be doing as well, preparing. And so if you want to have a harvest, those, those of us who are, those of you who might be farmers, I'm not a farmer by the way, I like gardening though. But what do you do as a farmer? What do you do as a gardener? You want those juicy ripe tomatoes. You want that fresh sweet corn. You want those plump, juicy cucumbers, but what do you have in order, have to do in order to get those? You've got to break up that fallow ground, you've got to till it, you've got to fertilize it, you've got to water it, you've got to plant the seeds, you've got to do all of this work, all of this preparation, if you ever want to get to what you really want, and that is the fruit. So break up the fallow ground, so this morning, whatever it is in your life that you want God to come through on, there's some things you probably need to do to prepare. Be presumptuous and believe God. Be persistent and keep bringing it before the Lord. Be patient knowing that it may not come today, but God will honor his word. And then lastly, lastly, prepare. Prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, do what's necessary so that when God opens that door, you're not left floundering around. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are a God who hears us today. God, we thank you. That you're a God who not only hears us, but you, Lord, you respond to us. So we bless you this morning that we don't pray to a stone uh, idol. We don't pray to something made out of gold or, or precious metal. We, we, we pray to a living God who has real ears and real eyes and is really attentive to the needs and the desires of our heart. And so, Lord Jesus, in this room and in our church, there are needs of all kinds. Lord, this morning there are Folks who are, have hearts who are burdened over the spiritual condition of loved ones. They are far away from God. Many of the ones that people are praying for, many of the ones whose hearts are heavy, their loved ones are lost. And Lord Jesus, if they were to die today, they would go straight to hell. And so Lord, I pray you give us a heart to pray for people. And Lord, we would believe you for salvation in their lives. God, may they persistent, persistently bring those petitions before you. God, may they be patient, and, and Lord, may they prepare. God, prepare in their own hearts and own minds so that, that, God, when the opportunity comes, they will be able to know what to say and how to say it. Lord Jesus, we pray for those in our congregation who have family members or perhaps even in their own life who are ill and sick and, and, and struggling with all sorts of things, financial, relational, economic issues. God, help us to be a people who pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who know how to hear from heaven. God, even as a church, as we are moving forward, as we look toward a renovation of kind of changing the complexion of our facilities here and providing new and different space for our seniors, Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we think about that, as we look at what the price tag may be, and it may give us a, an element of anxiety this morning, help us to realize that as we pray, as we seek your face, we're praying to a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We're praying to the God who spoke everything into existence. We pray to a God who literally sets up and brings down leaders of countries. Nothing is too, too big for you. Nothing is too great for you. And God, help us to be a people who believe you, a people of faith. 
And Lord, may, be, may we be a persistent people, a patient people. And God, may we be a prepared people today. As we sing now in response to the Word of God, as we listen to the Spirit of God speak within us, Lord, give us faith. God, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to whatever it is you're leading us to or speaking to us about or calling us to in life. Perhaps, Lord, for some it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For others, as a Christian, it's turning back to you. It's placing their faith in you once again, Lord. It's repenting of sin and getting right with you. God, maybe others are struggling with various reasons. Maybe they just need to come to the altar and pray. But, Lord Jesus, this morning, help us to be a responsive people. God, as we sing, as we pray, and as we turn our faces towards you, we believe that you've already turned toward us. So speak to us, and Lord God, bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Won't we stand to our feet?